So, hello and welcome to the second edition of Development Drums, recorded on 19th September 2008. Uh, Development Drums is a podcast about current news in global development. And our aim is to give you a quick synopsis of the main stories in global development this week and some comment and views from experts. And we've got two terrific guests on the podcast this week. Uh, In Kinshasa, I'm pleased to welcome Peter da Costa, Uh, Peter knows the breadth and variety of Africa as well as anybody I know. Um, uh, Originally from the Gambia in West Africa, Peter trained uh, as a journalist and reported on West African affairs during the 1990s. He then moved in 1994 to Zimbabwe, where he was the regional director of the Interpress Service. And in 1997, Peter moved here to Ethiopia, to Addis Ababa, Uh, to become the Director of Information at the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. Uh, And then after um, some time in London doing a PhD, Peter now lives in Kinshasa with his wife. Peter, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you, Owen. And my second guest is uh, Professor Adrian Wood. Um, Adrian is a Professor of International Development at Oxford University. Um, He went from teaching economics at Cambridge after uh, studying at Cambridge and at Harvard uh, in the 1970s, uh, where he went on to the World Bank uh, to work on China and Turkey and on the um, 1980 World Development Report, which, if I remember rightly, was about um, adjustment and growth. That was about poverty and human development. Oh, was it? It was about poverty and human development. There we are. Yep. Um, And Adrian then spent five years as a professorial fellow at the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex, and then five years as the chief economist at the UK Department for International Development. And that's where I had the privilege of working with Adrian, and saw firsthand, Adrian, your ability to explain complicated economic ideas to ministers and senior officials, not all of whom were instinctively taken to understanding the world through the eyes of an economist. So uh, it's a a great gift you have, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Now, um, before we start, I just want to tell you about the feedback we've had from from our inaugural episode last week. Um, We've heard from a couple of listeners that they really like the idea of a podcast looking at development news. And we've had lots of compliments about the content and the style of the show. Uh, We've also had a couple of people saying they wanted a bit more diversity of voice and view. So we've got twice as many people on the panel this week. Uh, And a bit more voice from people from developing countries. So, Peter, your uh, input from Kinshasa will be particularly welcome uh, by the listeners. And a couple of people have said that they want... Uh, us to be a bit shorter and a bit snappier. So my mission this week is going to be to make sure that none of us rambles. Um, This week we're going to be looking at whether donors should cap the amount of aid they give to Africa. Uh, We'll be talking about the new power sharing agreement in Zimbabwe and what that means for development and for donors. Uh, Care International has published a new report saying that we should do more to prevent disasters and and help people uh, with security rather than spending money on dealing with problems when they happen. And the World Bank has published its latest Doing Business survey, so it's a packed week of news. 
So this week, there's been a lot of controversy on websites and on the blogs in response to an article in the Financial Times saying that donors should cap aid to Africa. Uh, the author of that piece was none other than Adrian Wood. So, Adrian, can you tell us why you think that African countries should have a little help from their friends, but there's such thing as too much help? Yeah, my concern is that if you give too much aid to a country for too long, um, although you've got to get a lot of benefits along the way, the long-term effect is to undermine governance in the country, fundamentally because if a government is relying for most of its revenue on donors, it's going to pay much more attention to what donors are saying and not enough attention to what its citizens are saying. So your worry is mainly about the accountability of government uh, to its citizens if those citizens are not paying for services through the tax. Exactly. And, and it's not so much the point that you sometimes hear about the macroeconomic effects of aid, the so-called Dutch disease effect, or do you think that's also a problem? There are a range of problems that you get if you give high levels of aid to countries for long periods of time. Uh, macroeconomic problems, problems of controlling corruption, uh, they're all quite serious problems, but I think that they can be dealt with um, if governments and donors behave in the right kind of way. My worry about the governance uh, the undermining accountability problem is that it's much, much more difficult uh, to see a way around this. So this, I, this is similar to the idea that Mick Moore, um, one of your former colleagues at IDS, uh, has been making, that the evolution of a state has depended historically on uh, a social contract between the government and the people it taxes. So is what you're saying that if, if, if you have too much aid, then a social contract doesn't evolve. Very, very much that. And you get a, a very, very similar problem uh, if a government is has large uh, oil or other resource rents for long periods of time, um, doesn't have to raise taxes from its citizens, doesn't have to get their consent uh, to being taxed, to how the money is spent. Simply, this, this uh, its revenue comes uh, out of the sky as a free gift and fundamentally... You know, as you see in a range of, uh, of countries, governments do what they like. So your article in the Financial Times suggested that donors should cap aid at 50% of the tax revenue they're receiving. Is that right? That's right. I mean, 50% of the revenue uh, that they're raising from their citizens in, uh, in non-coercive, uh, non-distortionary non ways. And I mean, why 50%? <clears throat> well... Fundamentally, that means that governments are then always going to get at least two-thirds of their revenue from their own citizens. Uh, they're never going to be in a situation where a majority of their revenue is coming from donors. And so they, the, the bulk of their attention is going to have to be focused on their citizens and what they're saying uh, and, and with donors in a, in a much, much smaller role. So 50% is inevitably an arbitrary number. Um, uh, it could, and presumably, it could be it could be matching their own tax revenues or 25% of their revenues. Is there a, is there a particular reason based on the empirical evidence why a ratio of two dollars of internal tax revenue to one dollar of aid is the right number, or is is that are you just trying to make a judgment? It's, I mean, it's a place to start a debate fundamentally. 
Um, I mean, 50 percent is I mean, no specific percentage is is ideal uh, for every country. I mean, what you'd like to do is actually to in each country, looking at the circumstances, balance the benefits of additional aid uh, against the costs of undermining accountability. And that balance is going to vary from one country to another. Um, and if any limit of this kind were ever imposed in reality, I would hope it would be implemented in a, in a more nuanced way than, than my simple 50%. But 50%, I think, is probably the upper limit. Um, I mean, what I, want to, what, I want situa- what I want to achieve is a situation where <clears throat> donors are very clearly, uh, as it were, minority funders relative to citizens. And so I think 50%... A third of, of, of revenue from donors is probably as much uh, as you can as, as, as one could one could accept. Let me bring in Peter. Peter, have you experienced and seen firsthand um, a situation in which the existence of large volumes of aid make government less accountable to their citizens? Do you do you agree with this idea of capping aid? Um, well, I agree. I agree with the. Um, I think it's important to. The debate about um, you know, uh, the sustainability and the you know the value of aid in this context. I think it's a very interesting idea to to kind of speak of you know um, of trying to sort of somehow force accountability by um, you know having donors uh, put a conditionality on the amount of aid uh, and tie it to taxes. Now. Uh, I think the problem with this is, yeah, I mean, it's great in the marketplace of ideas to have this kind of discussion, and it's certainly very stimulating for economists and, um, you know, uh, uh, other sort of aid experts, of which I confess I'm not one. Uh, but in reality, if you look at the reality on the ground, um, you know, not many countries in Africa, okay, can um, can sort of, you know, boast the kind of accountability, uh, you know, um, compact between um, people and, and the government um, that, you know, would be ideal. And I'm not sure that, uh, you know, imposing sort of caps on aid, uh, you know, from the outside would actually trigger or, or sort of force or catalyze this, this accountability. I mean, I think, that, you know, there are lots of... Uh, complex issues related to governance within countries in Africa and and those um, issues uh, fundamentally have to be addressed from the inside um, you know by the people um, and I think that you know in this era where we're talking about uh, you know post Accra the high level forum where it, it emerged very clearly that you know there's a huge transaction cost to aid for lots of countries. There's a growing fragmentation of aid. Um, there are huge issues with alignment and so on. Uh, I think you know what we need to try and do is um, is, is see if we can get you know donor um, behaviour um, in a collective way um, just to, to somehow enable uh, the the impact of aid. You know, the, enable aid effectiveness as opposed to. I mean, if we have um, an idea like this, uh, we'll have to. Um, take into account the fact that aid is in no way uh, coordinated and is is, is uh, quite fragmented at this point, and that there are actually increasing numbers of, of donors. Um, so um, to then come in and try and impose collective behaviour in terms of uh, uh, you know of, um, of, of um, a cap on aid would be probably uh, undoable. Adrian, let me let me put that point to you. Um uh, explicitly, wouldn't it be better to go on giving the aid and getting the benefits that you say aid brings, but doing it in such a way that it doesn't undermine domestic accountability? Are you saying that there is no feasible way for donors to, for example, by putting aid through government systems, to augment government's resources in developing countries, but still leave them, that government itself, in a position where it can be accountable to its own people for how they use those resources? 
I think it's very, very important to improve the way aid is delivered. I mean, that's something I emphasize a lot uh, in, in my work. And I think that there are certain kinds of improvements in aid delivery uh, that actually diminish uh, the problem I'm worried about, uh, the problem of undermining governance. But it's not actually as simple as I would like it to be. Um, I mean, what Peter was talking about, which is the, you know, the fragmentation of aid and the appalling way in which aid is delivered. I mean, there, I think, what's called the country-led model, which is fundamentally, you know, put governments in the driving seat and donors support that. Donors channel uh, financial resources through the government's budget, have it spent by the government's own civil servants. That's very, very good in terms of avoiding the problem of undermining government competence, government capacity. But it's not clear that it is actually reducing the problem of accountability. That the problem with the country-led model, um, you know, where you are delivering aid uh, through, through, through the budget, is that it, it gives donors a very big stick. <clears throat> I mean, they talk, you know, in a nice, friendly way, but if something goes wrong in a country, and Ethiopia is a very nice case in point of how this happens, with the country-led model, with a lot of budget support, you get into a situation where if something happens that, that, that donors uh, find politically difficult to, to deal with at the, at the donor country end, you know, questions will be asked in parliament, the aid budget will be questioned. Then you have a situation where donors have got the power to simply turn off aid or cut it in aggregate very easily and very quickly, which would have been much, much more difficult in the bad old days of thousands and thousands of small projects. Mm. And so there is a kind of political pathology here, which I've actually seen. Um, I mean, I, I got worried about this actually working in DFID because um, I saw this happening. If something happens uh, in, a, in a country you're giving large amounts of aid to, particularly through budget support, I mean, either there's some corruption scandal uh, or um, something goes wrong in an election and people are being arrested or people are being shot, the Secretary of State for International Development has no choice politically but to get on the phone and call the president or the prime minister of the country concerned and tell them to stop doing it. But Adrian, now we're talking here about aid, which I, I think you would accept, and you know, people like Jeff Sachs would argue are be um, you know being used to save lives, to build infrastructure, to develop agriculture, to help countries to adapt to climate change, and is actually useful. And what you're saying is that we should we should limit the amount of of that useful spending that we're investing in, because. When something goes wrong in the country, we, we as donors won't be able to help ourselves. We'll feel it necessary to interfere in the internal politics of that country and that the country is worse off as a result, as a result of that interference. And therefore, because we're unable to help ourselves in that, from doing that, it would be better that we don't spend the money on building infrastructure and saving lives and developing agriculture. That, is that a correct it's characterization of your argument? It is. It, it is. Unfortunately, is a correct characterization. There's a very, very uh, difficult trade-off here between the immediate benefits of aid, which are which are ver which are very large in all the ways you describe, and the longer-term risks of undermining 
accountability of undermining good governance. And good governance is absolutely fund fundamental to successful long-run development. I mean, all the countries that have become rich uh, or, or on the road to becoming rich have had strong, good, and in some fundamental sense, accountable governments. So your argument is not that a government will only be accountable if people are paying taxes. Your argument is that because of the way the donors behave and feel it necessary to step in if there's something happening that they disapprove of, that because of that tendency of the donors, therefore it's better not to give aid at all in the first place. Well, I'm not saying not to give aid at all. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying, you know, you can have too much of a good thing. You've got, you've got to be very careful not to give too much for too long <clears throat> um, if you're going to avoid this, this problem. I'm saying, you know, don't give aid. Far from it. And there's no way that you could think of that the donors could instead modify their behaviour so that they don't cause the problem that you describe while still providing the aid that has benefits. Alas, no. I mean, I've thought about this very, very hard. When I said to you, um, you know, that when something goes wrong in uh, a country to which, say, DFID is giving large amounts of aid, the Secretary of State has no option but to get onto the phone to the Prime Minister. That is just a harsh political reality that there is no way of, of avoiding as far as I can see. It's simply that the entire aid budget depends on uh, credibility in the eyes of Parliament and the public and the press, if that is undermined, even in one country, uh, the sort of raison d'etre of the whole aid program is under threat. So you've got this, as far as I can see, unavoid, because it, fundamentally it's because the government of the donor country has got to be accountable to its citizens and its citizens care about what's going on in these developing countries. And the other half of the political problem is that, of course, if, is that in a situation where most of a government's revenue is coming from donors, the prime minister or president of the recipient country has no option but to take that phone call. Yeah. You know, I mean, in China, it would be an entirely different story. Um, you know, I mean, if uh, Secretary of State wanted to get on the phone to the to the prime minister of China, wouldn't get the call put through. Have a job, wouldn't they? Peter, do you buy this? Is it, do you find this a persuasive argument that donors should should limit the amount of aid they give? Supposing they could, as you said earlier, they may not be able to do that. Right. Well, yes, I, I'm not. Um, you know, I'm not sure I'm qualified to, to talk about the merits or demerits of that particular 50% proposal. I mean, what I do think is interesting is the fact that you know, domestic tax revenue is is, um, is put on the table, and I'll come back to that in a second. Um, but I, I was talking to a contact of mine who's a governor of a central bank in, in, in an Eastern African country, uh, a country which is a very, you know, is considered by donors to be doing extremely well. Um, and uh, and his complaint was that, look, you know. We need to set aside issues of governance because once you have you've, you're in a mature relationship with donors, and that a proportion of your budget is, uh, is is accounted for by aid money, which is meant to be predictable and meant to come in the volume that was promised, and all of a sudden there's an issue of corruption that's raised, um, then um, you know the the you know the the whole sort of um, budget is threatened because um, you know donors who have promised to be predictable in their in their financing. All of a sudden, um, you know, raise an issue of governance, uh, and his argument is that issues of governance should be set outside the aid relationship and should be addressed, but in a different sphere, and it shouldn't interrupt issues of predictability. Now, uh, in, a, in an ideal world where a given country 
um, would have would know exactly how much it was getting from donors and what kind of aid it was getting from donors. Um, it would be in a much better position to plan its own development and to be able to, to, to fill its budget. Now, uh, another country in Eastern Africa, Kenya, um, is a country which is uh, the Minister of Finance, the last Minister of Finance said very clearly, very recently, that um, Kenya does not rely on aid for an iota, uh, a penny of its, of its budget. Um, Kenya's tax collection system is quite advanced, probably one of the most advanced in the African continent. And um, Kenya clearly doesn't rely on aid, sees aid as residual. Now, I think that's important, but then in order for, for tax to become a sort of a, a guaranteed source of income for the government, the government needs to be able to, to uh, be accountable to its people. Uh, that's where, of course, in a lot of countries, uh, you know, we're not yet at that point. Um, but uh, but I, I think, you know, uh, a discussion of this nature uh, it's, it's important to have a sort of external uh, discussion about it, but I think ultimately we need to look at the reality on the ground in countries uh, and recognize that each situation is quite different um, and, and recognize that the impetus for any sort of major uh, change or evolution of the aid relationship should really come from the inside of these countries based on these realities, um, you know, as opposed to, to from the outside. Yeah, admittedly, there are some very interesting ideas on the table. But um, this is my last point... Um, in the whole sustainability of aid. And I think a number of countries are beginning to sort of diversify uh, their sources of financing. Um, you know, Ghana is one, um, Tanzania is another. They're beginning to look to private markets, private equity and so on, to try and finance the development. And this is partly a recognition that aid is A, insufficient, B, unpredictable, C, introduces a particular transaction cost on governments, and, and D, is not sustainable. So I think, you know, we need to look at aid in that broader context and also understand it from the sort of uh, perspective of the countries. Adrian, what do you, what do you um, make of the idea that developing countries themselves ought to be setting caps on how much aid they want to receive from donors rather than having donors get together and set a cap themselves? Well, in my heart, it's what I really want. Uh, and I'm very uncomfortable in any situation where, as it were, donors are telling developing countries what to do. Um, you know, but my head and what I've actually seen happening in reality is that it's is that, you know, donors make it much, much harder, uh, can make it much harder for governments to um, to move ahead with improving uh, the relationship with their own citizens be because they are inundating uh, inundating them with, with 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 aid revenue, and so it's it's really it's it's a very difficult it's a very difficult dilemma, and you know but I don't see it as being politically realistic uh, in most countries for governments to, uh, it, to to sort of self-impose limits on how much aid they they receive. Um, I just don't I don't I don't see that as happening, you know, politically realistically. But I mean I I'm not. I'm not really deeply in disagreement with with either Peter or you about the specifics of this. I mean, I don't think we, I, I I I think there is a problem out here of aid and accountability. I think it's a problem that donors are not thought about enough, and really, I want them to think about it more. I want us to understand much better uh, the nature of the problem, and also think uh, much more seriously and strategically about what's the right way to deal with it. I mean, so what I wanted to do was to so we we'll start a debate on this, which I think ought to have been happening and hasn't. And, and Adrian, you have started a debate. Um, people who want to read a bit more about this, the, it's, um, there are links on the Development Drums 
uh, blog for today's episode. But there's a, a lively discussion both on the FT Economists Forum that Martin Wolf hosts and on the Centre for Global Development uh, Forum uh, in which Adrian and some very eminent uh, development economists and others have been uh, offering opinions. So if you want to read some more about that, I do recommend you go and look at that debate. Adrian, was there anything in those comments and that, that came up online uh, that made you think again or that, you, uh, that would make you want to modify your proposal? But there are a lot of very sensible and specific suggestions. I think people quite rightly highlighted the arbitrary nature of the 50% uh, rule. And um, I, I particularly liked a contribution from Paul Eisenman, where he said, well, you know, 50% fine, but think of that as, as it were as a yellow card. Um, you know, that's the point at which donors should think, hang on, hang on, you know, is, is there a risk here? And it's not like a red card. Um, you know, you then have a debate about what to do. And I think that's a rather good way of thinking about it. Well, thank you for um, for raising the issue, Adrian. Um, before we move on to our next story, I just want to thank the several listeners for uh, getting in touch with us to uh, give us feedback. Um, please, um, if you haven't already, go to development org and tell us what you think about the show. Uh, obviously, tell us if you like it, but more importantly, tell us what issues you want us to discuss, if you have suggestions for who we might have on in the future, um, or how we can make the podcast more useful for you. was Oliver Mutakuzzi, or Tuku, the singer whose lyrics have inspired optimism in his native Zimbabwe, uh, with a song calling for unity in Zimbabwe. This week we've seen a new power-sharing agreement between uh, Robert Mugabe and Morgan Changrai. Peter, you lived for a number of years in Zimbabwe. What do you make of the new power-sharing agreement, and what do you think the rest of the world should do in response? Um, well, it's it's a it's a momentous occasion for a lot of people, um, you know, particularly those who have been involved in the sort of political negotiations, and, and particularly, of course, uh, President uh, Thabo Mbeki of South Africa, who uh, is it's been claimed is, is triumphant uh, in having brought this about. Um, but in reality, there are lots of flaws. I mean, it's great that um, there's been you know a degree of accommodation, uh, um, but, but there are lots of flaws in the agreement, lots of um, gaps. And, and of course, uh, given the track record of, uh, of both parties, uh, well, all three parties, um, since uh, there's a third faction involved, um, you know, it's a wait and see really situation um, as to whether or not uh, this will really pan out into into something that you know brings Zimbabwe off from the brink, um, or whether uh, it's, it's an agreement that will be continue to be problematic. Um, you know, uh, for example, you know, some of the big issues, uh, you know, relate to the, um, the, the sort of division of labor between um, ZANU-PF, um, Robert Mugabe, and Morgan Shangirai's uh, MDC, uh, 
uh, you know, the, there's a sort of very convoluted um, uh, arrangement uh, whereby uh, Rob Mugabe remains head of state, um, controls the security services, and also runs the cabinet. Um, whereas uh, Morgan Shangirai runs, uh, you know, the um, uh, sort of council of ministers, which is effectively um, subordinate to the cabinet, uh, and uh, and and its rumour will run finance, the finance ministry, and also the Ministry of Interior, uh, therefore controlling the police. So um, it's difficult to conceive of a situation where the security services, who were uh, the apparatus, was very much uh, you know loyal to Robert Mugabe, uh, has now been balkanised uh, uh, to be sort of uh, you know managed by two different people. Um, so that's going to be uh, difficult to see how that works in practice. And then, of course, there's all the wrangling over the different ministries. Um, you know, this, the, the ruling party has 15 ministers. Um, Morgan Shangirai's faction will have 13, and the MDC uh, offshoot faction will have three, uh, thereby ensuring sort of balance of power. But it's not quite clear yet which ministries uh, will go where. And there's a big sort of fight going on over whether, uh, you know, finance should be handed over to MDC, and there's all sorts of rhetoric. So um, the actual, uh, and then there's also practical issues of trying to incorporate into the Constitution, you know, this new agreement. And, and the negotiators are saying it's going to take 60 days for that to happen. So, you know, there's still quite a lot to do to sort of flesh out the agreement. Now, in terms of the way that the international community should respond, as, as you're aware, um, you know, the European Union met um, uh, just after the agreement was uh, signed on Monday and, and uh, basically said that it wasn't going to change its position. It still maintains uh, um, sanctions on more than 150 uh, senior officials in the government. Um, it, it, it will not come back to the table with aid until it sees, you know, that there is the restoration of rule of law uh, and, uh, and some democratic space uh, has been opened up. Uh, and, and this is really the position of, of other major donors to the, to the um, to Zimbabwe, you know, the United Kingdom uh, and the United States. Um, so it's everyone sort of on a wait and see. But, but the assumption is that if Morgan Shangirai is able to sort of, you know, wrest the reins of power from, from Mugabe, as he says he will gradually, um, through the instruments that have been agreed on, then the donors will come back to the table. And their promises of, you know, huge amounts of money, um, you know, a lot of it humanitarian, um, but some of it also sort of more long-term developmental. Peter, what's your view on this? I mean, is it the beginning of a tendency across Africa where where a government loses an election or appears to lose an election, that instead of retiring gracefully, we end up with a power-sharing agreement, and you know, f- which takes months of effort and, and a certain amount of violence to come to. Um, I mean, is this a is this a trend that you think is uh, is this a trend in Africa? And and what's your view on whether this is uh, a good way of doing business? Um, well, I think power sharing is kind of very much in the spirit of African tradition. Uh, and, um, you know, as the African Union uh, and President Mbeki have emphasized, uh, you know, it's extremely important that, you know, that there be African solutions to African problems. Now, um, you know, before Zimbabwe, we had the case of Kenya uh, earlier, in this, earlier this year where we had a parachuting agreement. Uh, and, in fact, there have been a number of others. Um, you know, if you go back, there have been, um, you know, governments of national unity have been tried and failed in Angola, uh, Ivory Coast, Liberia, Sierra Leone, uh, Sudan, and if you go back as far as 1980, um, you know, in Zimbabwe, uh, shortly after independence, there was some sort of attempt at a government of national unity which failed, uh, and also in South Africa. So um, this is not a new tendency as such. I I think it just reflects the fact, um, the difficulty of um, (laughs) trying to bring, you know, sort of belligerent parties to some sense of accommodation. Um, Now, uh, I think, you know, in in the case of Kenya, 
um, you know, what that agreement did was put an end to all the uncertainty and the violence and stuff. And, and it really created the environment for the economy to get back on its feet, you know, for, uh, for people to go about their business. I mean, you know, the ordinary citizen in Kenya recognizes that the, the, the major beneficiaries of this agreement have been the two parties and the egos of the, of the leaders. Um, but ultimately, over the long term, you know, it, was, it's a, it constitutes a guarantee that the political process will move forward in an atmosphere that's nonviolent. And it also strengthens the hand of the citizens because they then, uh, having been through this um, turmoil, uh, are able much more, um, you know, sort of strategically to, to exercise their vote. Now, in the Zimbabwe context, it's a bit more complicated because... Whereas the violence in Kenya was, um, well, partly orchestrated by politicians, but also a lot of, a lot of it was spontaneous, um, you know, based on sort of age-old grudges. In the Zimbabwean context, you had, you had an apparatus of security. Um, you had the military, the security services, the police, um, all um, basically unleashed against uh, you know, sort of anyone who looked like an opposition supporter in Zimbabwe. And, um, you know, this agreement doesn't necessarily reign in these people. I mean, in a sense, uh, you know, the ZANU-PF is, 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 uh, has, has negotiated impunity because, um, you know, there is absolutely nothing in the agreement about, you know, prosecuting people who killed, you know, uh, others, uh, or who attacked and beat up and raped others. Um, and, um, you know, these are very sort of major issues of restitution that have to be addressed, you know, before people can feel that there's any sort of credibility in this government. Now, but obviously, you know, uh, before that happens, Shangri-La is going to have to try and negotiate his way through this maze of, of ambiguity, uh, you know, before he can actually sort of start. But he has already asserted the importance of people being brought to justice. Let's come to this question of what the, um, uh, uh, what the rest of the international community should do in response to this, because Shangri has also said uh, that, uh, and, you know, in his speech as Prime Minister of Zimbabwe, he said, we are grateful for the support you've shown uh, us over the past nine years, he said, addressing himself to the international community, and we appeal to our regional neighbours, our African brothers and sisters, and the international community to assist us in rebuilding our nation, to assist us to address problems facing our society, our education and our healthcare systems and our economy. The first priority of government is to unlock the food already in our country. We need doctors and medicines back in our hospitals, teachers back in our schools. And he said the international aid organizations came to help our country and found our doors locked. We need to unlock our doors to aid. But Peter, what you're saying is that we're in a wait and see, that we don't yet know how this is going to pan out, how these different institutional arrangements are going to be. And as you say, the EC has said, well, let's see what happens. Now, what do you think? Should we respond to Shangri's request, uh, to his appeal for help? And and, um, uh, should the the donors now um, uh, be thinking of large-scale programs to assist in the rebuilding of Zimbabwe? Or do you think they should... Uh, wait it out and, and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the issue of, um, of um, having the systems in place in, in, in Zimbabwe to be able to absorb all this aid uh, is a major question. And, and you know, one of the um, characteristics of the slide, you know, uh, that Zimbabwe has undergone since 2000, you know, when the whole land issue sort of broke out, 
uh, is that you know the systems have been undermined. You know the institutions that were in place, um, you know, are no longer in place. The governmental institutions, the networks, and so on. So, I think you know the the new government of national unity has a major challenge on its hands, which is to try and create the environment in which all this aid of different kinds, you know, can uh, actually come and make a difference. And and you'll recall that some of the uh, as as uh, Shangirai was referring to the fact that there was aid in the country, but it was it was sort of somehow blocked. Uh, the implication here is that. Um, you know, the food aid that was distributed by sort of humanitarian agencies uh, was basically diverted to supporters of San UPF and, and, you know, denied from supporters of MDC. So there's that issue. I mean, there may, it may not be necessarily that there's not enough food in Zimbabwe. Um, it may be that the distribution channels need to be unblocked. And then, you know, you have the government has unbanned uh, you know, sort of, uh, it basically took a, it had banned the, you know, the activities of a number of, uh, of NGOs and, uh, and international aid organizations, and that has been reversed. Now, that's a positive move, which will obviously, you know, uh, help sort of the distribution of food aid and so on. But then there's also, you know, aid of different types. Um, I mean, obviously, the stabilization aid. Zimbabwe's, uh, you know, inflation rate is 11 million percent at this point, and some are predicting that by the end of the year, it will be 40 million percent. Um, so, you know, that needs to be addressed with an IMF kind of, uh, you know, stabilization program. And, um, you know, the, so discussions would have to be had with IMF on that. Then there's also, you know, um, and, and people are suggesting, for example, that the currency needs to be pegged to the South African RAND in the short term to try and stabilize it. Mm. Um, and then there's also obviously the sort of, you know, immediate um, casualties of this crisis have been health, education, you know, uh, social services need to be reconstructed and so on. Uh, so I think, you know, in terms of, I think the international community should, I mean, rightly sort of rally around um, to help, but with a recognition that, you know, this, the con conditions need to be right politically and also infrastructurally for that aid to work. And, and I saw uh, um, uh, an editorial in The Economist um, which basically said that Europeans now have to get ready to save Zimbabweans from starvation. Now, you know, that sort of, um, you know, attitude, I mean, sort of, you know, sort of rendering of the situation uh, tends to sort of create a defensiveness among Zimbabweans. Um, uh, clearly, there will be a, a lot the international community has to do to help, but it needs to be marshaled in such a way that it actually makes a difference as opposed to, you know, just crowds out, um, you know, uh, the situation. Adrian, if you were the, uh, still the chief economist in DFID, what would you be recommending now? I think it would be very much what, what the donor community is now saying. There's no disagreement among the donors, whether the official donors or the NGOs on this. They use slightly different words, but they're all fundamentally saying the same thing as Peter, which is <clears throat> we don't quite know what's going to happen. Um, everybody wants to, everybody wants very, very much to do two things. One is to um, relieve the sufferings of the people of Zimbabwe. Uh, and the other is to help Morgan Changarai strengthen his political position. The problem is we don't know exactly what we need to do to make either of those things happen at this point. In other words, the, the, it's, it's one of these things, you know, where the devil is in the details. And where I think there's going to have to be very, very hard discussion is about, you know, exactly what certain sorts of assistance we should give and what those certain sorts of assistance should be contingent on in terms of what's happening in the country. And I think to be able to formulate that kind of detailed, um, that, that sort of detailed plan, uh, 
A, you need a lot of information about what's going on in, in, in Zimbabwe, and B, you're not going to know it now. I mean, you've got to, you've got to wait and see what happens uh, and learn. So I think, actually, that, you know, the donors are being, you know, quite sensible about this. And I think I would, you know, I would be arguing very much the same thing. Let's move now to um, a new paper that's been published by an NGO called Care International, um, which was actually on the BBC World Service yesterday. It's, it's made the news. It's been published in advance of the conference next week in New York on meeting the Millennium Development Goals, which we'll be covering in next week's edition of Development Drums. The Care International paper uh, says that the world is spending too much money on, cope, on helping people cope with disasters and is spending too little money on resolving the underlying issues that trap people in extreme poverty and leave them uh, in conditions of insecurity. Um, Adrian, did you uh, have a chance to look at this and what did you make of it? I did. I did. I mean, who could disagree with this? these propositions, uh, which have been made... God knows how many times before over over of an enormous number of years. Um, you know, ideally, the way you want to crack these problems um, is you know, fundamentally by doing all whole range of things, not all of them aid related, that, that will promote uh, development in poor countries. Um, and part of it is indeed improving the way in which aid is delivered and its effectiveness. And you know, if we can do all those things successfully, then the need for this kind of emergency firefighting. Uh, is going to be reduced. That's absolutely in, indisputable. And I don't think that Care International has offered anything particularly new uh, in terms of specific things that need to be done, you know, in these in these more fundamental areas. And, you know, what are they saying? I, I mean, yes, we, we've spent $100 billion on emergency aid over the last seven or eight years. Are they saying that we shouldn't have done that? I mean, that we should have just sat back and waited for the, the development uh, assistance system to improve in the long run. No, they're not saying that. I mean, they couldn't possibly be. So, as I say, I wonder what the value added of this report is. Peter, did you, did you think that it uh, made proposals for change or was it just repeating the same, uh, the same criticisms as before? Um, I, I agree with Adrian that um, it's, it's not saying anything new as such. Uh, I mean, what, what makes it sort of, um, you know, relevant at this time is the fact that, you know, obviously it was time to come out, you know, um, you know, on the basis of the, of the, uh, the food crisis and, um, you know, all the, you know, it sort of uh, somehow, you know, comes off on the back of the, of the shocks that people are experiencing, you know, the poor are experiencing worldwide. Um, now, uh, yes, as Adrian says, I mean, it's saying absolutely nothing new, and and the international system should, I mean, should it have stopped, you know, and uh, and sort of, you know, tried to do something different. Um, I mean, what we're basically faced with here is a reminder that the, you know, the the global sort of architecture, um, development institutional architecture needs to be overhauled. And and again, this we've heard many times, the UN system needs to reform and so on. And there are various things happening, you know, in the UN to try and bring bring about greater coherence. But the the yawning gap, which you know still exists, is the fact that humanitarian assistance is, is sort of you know sort of distributed almost you know. Um, Despite the fact that there's there's an impetus to to provide development assistance, I mean there's a huge gap between you know food aid, for example, which the World Food Programme tends to to dole out, 
and um, you know stuff that UNDP is doing on development and other agencies. And um, and unless that sort of gap is, is closed, you know, um, and also we recognise the, the gap between you know um, emergency uh, you know assistance in, in situations of conflict and sort of more you know mainstream development uh, type activity. And unless I mean, there's been a lot of rhetoric about post-conflict and all this stuff, and and different agencies have categorised different countries and tried to build a continuum between you know sort of emergency and and normative development but in reality very little is happening on the ground and so um you know the default position is that every time there's a crisis people get you know food thrown from planes um uh, and at the same time in the same country other stuff is going on which you know isn't necessarily um you know uh, congruent with uh, you know this food aid so peter you're saying one issue is that um we need to join up better between the humanitarian effort and the uh, development effort um, but there does seem to be an issue that they've identified uh, in the report, which they talk about in the case of Niger. But I've seen it right here in Ethiopia as well, which is that when you see a problem coming, you can have all the early warning system, you can have all the evidence, and yet nobody does anything about it until it turns into a crisis, by which time not only is there enormous human suffering and tragedy that could have been avoided, but it actually becomes much more expensive to deal with than if you had stepped in sooner with an appropriate response and helped people, for example, to improve nutrition um, uh, while staying in their home rather than moving, for example, to a relief centre or a feeding centre. And here in Ethiopia, we have people who are in food crisis because of a harvest that failed in February and March this year. And we had the early warning signs as early as March and April. We had the, we've, there are early warning systems in place. We knew there was going to be a food crisis, but it wasn't until CNN had pictures of starving people uh, on television that any money was forthcoming to do anything about it. Now, Adrian, you said, well, should we be spending $100 billion a year on emergencies? Well, wouldn't it be better to have spent $100 billion a year on helping those people before it before they got into the situation they're in now it absolutely would and i mean the situation you describe is just yet another instance of the of the problems that arise from a fragmented uncoordinated aid system where nobody's in charge nobody can hold uh, as it were donors to account i mean this is a it's an extraordinary situation this is a um an orchestra without a conductor. Um, and as I say, it's, it's the, what you see in the situation of emergency aid is just, you know, nobody is in charge. And, it's, you know, this happens across the board. And I'm, I'm very, very, uh, I, I entirely agree when, when Care International is saying that in addition to fixing the problems of the, as it were, the aid system in general, you need to fix the problems of the emergency aid system. That is absolutely right. Um, but it's been said many times before, and it's very, very difficult to do anything about it because you come back to these fundamental political problems of a very, very fragmented aid system.
That was Eric Clapton with Let It Let It Grow. Uh, this week, the World Bank has published its Doing Business report. Doing Business is a measure of the costs of doing business in developing and in developed countries. Uh, they produce a report each year looking at 10 indicators to see what progress has been made in helping uh, create an environment in which business can invest and grow. And this year, in the, among the top 10 reformers, there are three countries from sub-Saharan Africa – Senegal, Burkina Faso, and Botswana. Um, but Eastern Europe and Central Asia dominated the list of reformers with Azerbaijan, Albania, uh, the Kyrgyz Republic, and Belarus, uh, all um, showing very strongly as places that are increasingly good to do business. Uh, Peter, what did you make of the Doing Business report, which always gets a lot of attention in the press and is treated as a very strong indicator of uh, of government policy. Right. Um, well, uh, I think the, you know, in a sense it's a no-brainer that um, Sorry. Uh, any country worth its uh, salt uh, uh, will basically um, try and improve its business climate. Now, um, I think, yeah, the report was very useful. Um, I think maybe we may want to ask some questions about the indicators. Um, you know, to what extent are they sort of uh, ideologically linked to the sort of ideological reform of the 80s and 90s, uh, and to what extent do they really reflect, um, you know, uh, the reality of, of the business climate uh, today? Now, but as far as the, um, uh, I think the idea of yeah, most countries, I think, you know, we've moved beyond structural adjustment, we've moved beyond those debates, and most countries recognise pragmatically that they need to be able to attract investment. Now, the question is, what sort of investment are we talking about? Now, you know, in the past. In, in the past, the, the investment that most countries were trying to affect, uh, attract was FDI from sort of, you know, um, you know the north, basically, the industrialized north. Uh, and, you know, lots of studies have shown how difficult it was to attract that investment, even if the fundamentals were in place. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, FDI doesn't really move, you know, beyond certain regions of the world. Now, um, you know, what's changed today is that, you know, countries are, are looking south, um, you know, southern countries are looking south for investment, um, and they're no longer just trying to improve their business climate to attract investment from the north. So that's one major sort of um, underlying sort of, you know, uh, fact. And, and then on top of that also, I mean, obviously that's led to a certain environment, you know, um, a certain attitude, um, you know, which is quite prevalent in countries that are resource-rich, um, that, you know, um, it's not so much about us improving our climate, it's about us opening our doors um, to China, for example, you know, to come and, um, and, and improve our infrastructure. Uh, and in return, they can have as many, you know, natural resources as they, as they want. So it's created, you know, there, there are a number of different uh, dimensions to this, and it's no longer about FDI from the north coming to countries in the south. It's, this is the most straightforwardly good news story of the week. Um, you know, this is not, not going to revolutionize development, but what's, what's happening, what's uh, being described in this report, um, you know, is unambiguously an improvement. And, I mean, these reforms are actually not fundamentally aimed at, at foreign investors at all. They're 99% own aimed at local investors because they're very, very simple things like making it much, much easier to set up a small firm, to pay taxes, uh, to carry on business in the country. And w where I see the benefits coming uh, in, is, is simply facilitating and stimulating entrepreneurial and business activity you know, by local people in their own countries. And as I say, you, it is a... It is a 
it is truly a, a win-win thing. You 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 you, re, you you reduce the regulations, <clears throat> you streamline the the process of setting up a business. That is both good in terms of promoting uh, economic efficiency and growth, but it also reduces corruption. It also reduces the number of people you have to pay bribes to to set up a business. It seems to me, as I say, this is it's not. You know, this is not a, a, a very, very big deal because the list of indicators that they look at is quite restricted. It excludes some very, very important things like the quality of infrastructure, um, uh, crime, um, you know, indeed even business expectations. But, you know, let's not make the best the enemy of the good. And this is unambiguously good. That's all for this week's edition of Development Drums. I want to thank both of my guests, Adrian Wood, who is at my sister's house in Brighton, and Peter DeCosta, who is at home in Kinshasa. And I'd like to thank my sister, Virginia, for hosting Adrian and making him coffee, and to mention particularly Bob Smith, who recorded the Development Drums jingle. Next week, we'll be talking about the big meeting in New York about progress towards the Millennium Development Goals, And we're expecting some announcements there, which we'll cover in detail. Please do visit developmentdrums.org. Give us your feedback on this edition of Development Drums. We really want to hear from you about what you like and what you don't like about this podcast and what you want us to discuss in future. Uh, From me here in Addis Ababa, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time. 